You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. As we have studied the, the book of Isaiah so far, uh, there's been a couple of moments where we've linked to Christ in, in different ways, hasn't there been? God's talked of, uh, about a stump uh, and a vine, and we're saying, well, that Jesus is the true vine, for example. But when we get to Isaiah chapter 7, you maybe already know where we're going with this one, because this is a passage about Jesus, uh, especially that promise that in, the, in verses 13 and 14 or so that's read at Christmas time. It is a, a Christmas passage, if you like. Why? Because it points to the advent, the, the coming of Jesus into the world. And it, I would love to, some people have Christmas trees up already. We're going to sing a lot of carols tonight, but it's maybe a little too early. But my sister, whenever she was at school, she went to secondary school, and well, one of our cousins was also in the same year as Ruth, and Ruth and Joanna got on well. And well, if there was a problem, if Joanna had a problem, or if Joanna needed help, or she needed to ask a question, Joanna never asked. She always brought Ruth alongside, and either Ruth had to speak up for her, or maybe Joanna just had her as mental or moral support. She used to go approach maybe a teacher or something. And in the passage there, I want us to be a wee bit like Ruth and Joanna in that sense, to be encouraged, to, to keep going, to, to stand firm in our faith. Why? Because God is with us. Let's stand firm in our faith because God is with us. This is what this is about. So what we're, we're going to look at the passage uh, together, but the, the first point is just that, standing firm in our faith verses 1 through to 9. And well, what's going on here? Well, you can read 2 Kings chapter 16 later, and that will give some context for us. But here we have, we're told in this passage, King Ahaz. So about four years between chapter 6 and chapter 7, in case you're wondering why we've flipped kings. But here we have King Ahaz, king of Judah, so king of the, the southern kingdom, and the northern kingdoms led by this guy, King Rezin of Aram. And well, the king of the north, He's gathering an army with others that he's a part of this uh, alliance of to conquer the southern kingdom. So we see that in verse 1, that they're looking to storm up, a march up to fight against Jerusalem. And they would mount an attack against it, but they would be unsuccessful. They failed, they joined forces, but they're going to come back again, is what we'll discover. They attacked Jerusalem, yes, but they fail. And then word comes again in verse 2. That this league that is established, this allied nations to conquer Judah, still exists, and they're going to come after Jerusalem. They haven't given up, even though the first attack failed. So we see that in verse 2, when the house of David heard, again, here, the house of David in the Old Testament, God's trying to remember the promise. Remember the promise of the house of David? There's going to be this eternal line. So here, is this eternal line? Is this king going to be a good king or a bad king? Well, Ahaz is a really bad king, but we'll get to that later. Here's the king of Judah, and well, he's told that this attack's going to come, and Ahaz, he is really worried about his son and his grandson. He's really worried about this throne that he's in charge of. He's really concerned about its security. But why is he afraid of these kings? What, look, look at what Isaiah says in, in verse 4. This is the Lord speaking through Isaiah, and he's telling the king, King Ahaz, See what you're worrying about? They are yesterday's men. They're done. They're just, what does it say, smoldering stubs of firewood. They're no longer a threat. They're done. They're dusted. 
And then in verse 8, again, uh, the Lord is speaking on what's happening to Ephraim, another name for the northern kingdom. They're going to be shattered, so they're not a people. Why are you worrying about them? Why are you worrying? And this is what is happening, and this is why they need to stand firm in their faith. They're going to come under attack, but they need to stand firm. He thinks the succession Ahaz of his, king, his kingship, the, pers- the perseverance, or the him keeping on the, the nation of Israel is based on himself. He feels it's under threat because Assyria and the northern kingdom is going to attack. And because he's under threat, he's going to have a plan in place, Ahaz. And we see that in diversity. And where does Isaiah go to meet the king? It's oddly specific, isn't it? It's really specific in verse 3. I would have loved that about six months ago, asking where the Lord, do you want me to serve? Where do you want me to go? This is almost like Google map, perfect. Where is he going here? In verse 3, an aqueduct. Bit strange. Why there? Jerusalem has just been under attack. Jerusalem was under siege for a very short period of time. And here the king has put men to work to solve the problem of the siege. Jerusalem is hard to get water to it. But here the king is going to, has prepared an aqueduct. So if Jerusalem comes under siege, there's going to be water. They're going to be able to survive. And here, whenever Isaiah goes and, and marches to, to the king outside of Jerusalem at this aqueduct, the king's going to be faced with a choice. The question is, is he going to trust in human preparations or God? Trusting in human preparations or God. Where is this king Ahaz going to find security? Is he going to find it in, in maybe other military powers? This wonderful aqueduct that's built in a, a, so, a, a magnificent feat of engineering, perhaps... Where is he going to put his trust? The preparations are God. It's the same question for us too, isn't it? Our human preparations, our exam, revision, our business plans, or God. And here Isaiah is going to meet the king, but he, he's got someone along with him. Do you see who's along with him? His son, Sheer Jasub. And well, that's a strange name, isn't it? But most of your Bibles will have a footnote, and the footnote will say what the name means. It means a remnant will return. So Isaiah is going to go out to this aqueduct. He's going to meet with the king, and he's going to speak with the king. But before the king, the king is stirring him in the face, is going to be Isaiah, the Lord is salvation. But it's also going to be Sheer Jasub. A remnant will return. So in other words, it's going to be a picture, a visual aid for the king of what God's going to do. A reminder of God's promise that a remnant will return. But it's also a hint of devastation, isn't it? Because for a remnant to return, you need to go. If there's to be a remnant, there must be devastation. And here Ahaz is going to meet Isaiah and his son. And the king is to be reminded here where he's supposed to put his trust. Not in human preparations, but God himself. These sons are are named. We get another son of Isaiah in chapter 8. Uh, as well. And well, at the end of chapter 6, we see that God is pronouncing judgment on, uh, on the people. And just that, last, just that last line of chapter 6, it says, the holy seed will be a stump in the land. So even this remnant, although it might be utterly devastated and look awful, it's going to be a faithful people. It's going to be a people that are a holy seed, a people, a remnant of God's people. They're going to come back. The Lord is still going to be God. The Lord's still going to be in control of it all. 
it is the Lord that the people should be putting their trust in. And for the church, it's the exact same. The, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. God is, uh, is keeping himself a remnant of people who really know what it means to be saved. God is keeping uh, our people aside here and on earth as we live, a true people who believe in Jesus, who trust Jesus, who knows what it means to be saved by grace, and we know where we're going. So that should help us stand in faith, shouldn't it? The end of, of verse 9, it is there. What's the Lord say? If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Uh, uh, NRSV is another Bible translation. It's good, it rhymes. If you, will not, if you will not be sure, you cannot be secure. If you are not trusting in Jesus, you cannot be secure. For the future of David, David's line, this, this kingly line that God promised David, the only way it's guaranteed is not human preparations, but faith in the Lord. The immediate problem of the northern kingdom, it will pass. In fact, it's basically nothing is what the Lord is saying here. But if they do not trust the Lord, what's the problem? They will experience a similar fate to the north, won't they? If you do not stand firm in faith, King Ahaz, if you do not trust me, you're not going to stand. You're going to be wiped away. And we need to trust Jesus regardless of the challenges we face. The northern kingdom, whatever that is in our life, it will come and it will go. Whatever challenges we face, even as a generation of people, at the end game, they're just smoldering bits of wood. They're done. They're yesterday's men. They have no power over us because Christ has won. Nothing compared to the power of God. We must cling to God and his promises. And if frightening circumstances come our way, just like King Ahaz finds himself in, we put our trust and confidence in God alone. When suffering knocks on our doors and it seems an impossible situation, faith never gives up. Faith stands firm. Faith keeps going. Standing firm in faith means we will stand. Not because of our strength, but because we're standing in the Lord Jesus. He is that solid rock. Let us stand firm in our faith regardless of what we face. Stand firm in our faith. Secondly, very simple, 10, uh, verses 10 to 17, the sign of Emmanuel. And there's a few young people here and some teachers in school, if you're doing a time flower, you design a poster or design a, some sort of sign and it kills maybe 15, 20 minutes and it's really handy and then you might even get them to present it. And, or some people maybe create secret handshakes and all sorts of kind of things. But back whenever I was in primary school, Market Hill got a, a, lots of money spent on it by the council. We got brand new litter bins. Isn't that good? But there was a competition for the local primary school. And the competition was, if, you know, to draw a poster to be put on one of the bins, or all the bins in town, uh, and your, your poster and your name would be on the bin for everyone to see. Obviously, my poster ended up in the bin rather than on the bin. But... The idea of designing a sign that was to be used is good. And imagine, just imagine, getting an opportunity to design a sign, maybe for a logo or your business. Some people have already done that. But imagine coming up with a sign that would tell the whole world how God is going to save his people. Telling the whole world how God is going to lift people out of their, their misery, of their sin and their trouble. How is God going to lift them up? Imagine being able to design that sign. 
That's exactly what Ahaz has the opportunity to do. Verses 11, ask the Lord your God for a sign. And while Ahaz gives an interesting response, to be fair, it sounds really spiritual. It sounds as though it would be the right thing to say in verse 12. He says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord uh, to the test. It sounds good, doesn't it? Jesus, when he's tempted in the wilderness, one of the things, one of the verses he quotes from Deuteronomy 6 is that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But context is key, isn't it? The Lord speaks and says here, ask for a sign, Ahaz. A sign that everyone would know that I am God and that when you trust me, you will be my people. See, Ahaz in his response is not super holy. Rather, Ahaz just doesn't want to listen to what God has to say. He is going to put his trust in political allegiances and man-made structures rather than God. In the Gospels, the Pharisees ask for a sign. People today might ask for a sign. And spoiler alert, we've already spoiled it already. Verse 14 is the sign, and the sign is Jesus. Ahaz doesn't want to know or believe God's word. He doesn't care. He is worshiping other gods, but God by his grace, even though Ahaz says, no, I'm not interested, God by his grace is going to give us a sign anyway. A sign that will be for everlasting and enduring hope for his people, but also of judgment for those who aren't his people. The people of of the southern kingdom, the people of Jerusalem, they're going to need a sign. The people are going to need a fresh reminder of hope. They know the Genesis 3 promise. They know Abraham's promise. They know David's uh, promise with King David that there's going to be an everlasting king, but they're going to need something else. They're going to need another sign to look out for because they're going to go to exile. They're going to be displaced. They're going to be ruled over by other nations. They're going to have to wait 500 years more for this promise because of the wickedness of Ahaz and of the people and many other kings. And God says to Ahaz, you need a sign. You can be sure God knows they need a sign. And that's why God gives us signs too, doesn't he? In the sacraments of baptism and communion, signs and seals of God's grace to us. Why does he give them to us? Because he knows we need them. He knows we need them. Ahaz Ahaz is asked to pick a sign, any sign, he says no. Ahaz is rejecting Isaiah. Ahaz is rejecting the Lord and the Lord's word. He wickedly refuses the sign. Doesn't care about God's word, but God's going to give him this sign anyway. In verses 15 to 16, before we come to verse 14, you do it the other way around, we're told here that this is, there's going to be three years or so, this is all going to be over three or four years, the king, for King Ahaz, the two kings that he so fears aren't going to be the problem. It's going to come a few years down the line. At the end of verse 17 and onwards, there's just going to be a bigger problem to deal with here. See, this word from the Lord, from Isaiah to Ahaz, it's all about trusting God and trusting his word. Ahaz doesn't do it, but we praise God that by his grace he gives us a sign. Anyway. So what is the sign? Verse 13, first thing is a virgin. The sign of Emmanuel is that there would be a, a virgin. This is one who is to give birth, even though she's a virgin. Matthew's gospel picks that up for us. Mary is pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Luke explains to us that Mary is visited by an angel. Why? Why is those details in there? The Jewish people knew there's a virgin to come. 
is to fulfill what God has promised. Yes, it is so impossible, but that is why the angel tells Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 37, nothing's impossible with God. This is an impossibility, but in reality, it's not with God. The virgin birth of Jesus by Mary is important for us. Why? Because we're all born sinners. We are all born sinners because we come from Adam and Eve. Every human born is born into sin. Jesus, though, is not like us, but he really is like us in another way. Jesus is not born into sin because he is not of Adam and Eve. He's of God and of man. He must be born in this way, not to, to, to be sin like us, but in order to be divine, but made human like us to pay the penalty of sin, to be that perfect, unblemished lamb of God. That is why it's important. It's a virgin. What's the next thing? The virgin will be, called, will be with child and will give birth to a son. And we know it's Jesus. It's, it's a boy. It's a son. And we remember that he was born on the 25th of December, 2022 years ago or so. In a sense, it's Jesus' birthday, but there's another sense in which it's not. Okay? Jesus, the Son, did not come into existence on Christmas Day 2022 years ago. No, Jesus was there from the very, very start, the very beginning. He is co-eternal, co-equal, co-existing with the Father and Spirit. Jesus is begotten, not created, but he's a Son. And then finally, Jesus is Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. He's going to be God among us, God with his people. And Jesus remains with us. God remains us, with us. The, the creator of heaven and earth, the ruler over heaven and earth, the one with all of his holiness and glory and splendor that's beyond our understanding, promises to be with us. That reality that God became flesh can be difficult for so many to grasp, but it's irresistible to us if we believe, isn't it? Because we get it. This infinitely great God sent his message to, to down to earth that a savior would come to the world, into the world to save us. Jesus is God with us. The disciples saw that. The people saw that in the gospels, didn't they? When Jesus healed the sick, calmed the storm, fed the hungry, delivered the demon possessed, they all said, this man must be of God. God was with them. And God is with us today. The great commission, I am surely with you to the very end of the age. And God remains with us. The son is risen and ascended and ruling but the Father and Son have sent us the Spirit. The same Spirit that created the heavens and the earth, the same Spirit that conceived Christ is a given as a gift to Christ's church. It's God's Spirit who dwells in Christians. It's the Holy Spirit who brings us comfort and guidance. God's Spirit utterly transforms us. This is the promised sign. It's going to be God with us. A walking human, just like us, but utterly divine. That's the sign of Emmanuel. That is why we celebrate it at Christmas time, because it, it's Jesus fulfilling all those promises of the Old Testament from Genesis 3, 12, the, David's everlasting throne. It's Jesus come down to earth. The sign of Emmanuel, Ahaz did not want. But there's something else I want you to know about Ahaz. In 2 Kings chapter 16, we're told that King Ahaz sacrificed his own son. The king was an idolater. He didn't trust the Lord, and he sacrificed his own son to a false god. What's God saying to him in this? Let's read verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you'll call him Emmanuel. God's saying to Ahaz, Ahaz, 
what was going on in your heavy lifts? Why did you do that with your own son? Why? It makes no sense. Why are you giving your own son to the false gods? Maybe to get favor from them, or maybe it's to cleanse your own sin. Maybe it's to make peace with somebody else. Why did you do this? Why did you enter the temple and take all the silver and gold and give it to the Assyrians so that they would be faithful to you when they're not going to be? Why are you ruining my temple? Why are you throwing your son into a fire pit? Why? Do you not get it? God says, here's a sign I has. A son. If you're going to be a sacrifice your own son, I'm going to do that. I'm going to throw my son into the fire pit for you. Why would you need to do anything else but trust me? This sign of Emmanuel, God with us, with all that background going on in King Ahaz's mind and stirring him in the face that God's going to bring a faithful remnant through, God gives us a son and throws him on the fire pit when he receives the wrath of God. We have a son who would be a sacrifice for us. Let's stand firm in Jesus. And then finally, uh, verses 18 to 25, there's the soon-to-come judgment. The soon-to-come judgment. So here are four pictures, all starting with in that day. Um, just, just very, very quickly. First picture, God's controlling all. God is controlling all. We see in verse, <clears throat> verse 18 that the Lord will whistle. It's, you know, some people have sheepdogs and, and people are able to train their dog to listen to the whistle and to, to maneuver at the right time and to do the right thing. And it takes a lot of time. And hear what God is saying. He says, I'm going to whistle and people are just going to come. So the flies from Egypt, the soldiers from Egypt, they're going to come. I'm going to whistle and they're going to come to Israel. The, the, the Assyrians are going to whistle at them too, and they're going to come. They're going to come and take over. It, it, it's going to be all down to me. God is going to summon Egypt and Assyria. God's going to summon the foreign powers to come and invade. They will invade, yes, but it's God that's allowing them to invade. God is controlling and directing, and God is saying, I'm controlling all your judgment that's to come. Judgment is going to come from God. Secondly then, uh, in that day under Assyria, they will be humiliated in verse uh, 20. They're going to use a razor hard from beyond the river, the king of Assyria. I think that's maybe hinting at the fact that Ahaz took all the, the silver and gold from the temple and gave it to the king of Assyria to kind of like pay him off to not come and attack. And here, ironically, they're going to, it's a hard hand, a razor hard. They're literally paying for their own downfall. They're funding the Assyrians to come back and attack them. And here they're going to be shaved and humiliated. Whenever you're, you're bald, you're dishonored. Prisoners and slaves often would have been shaved just to, as a mark of humiliation. And this is going to be God's people. This is the judgment to come. Shaved and humiliated the people of Jerusalem. Then in, in verse 21, there's going to be uh, difficulty and hardship. This man has only got one cow and, and two sheep. This is a land flowing with milk and honey. A land where herds and flocks should, should gather and eat to their heart's content. And the people would easily be able to look after their herds and their, their flocks. There's not going to be success like that at all. In fact, there's just going to be a few animals needed. There's going to be no need for lots of cows to, to eat or to milk. 
there's not going to be the need for, for sheep, for, there's not going to be the need for lambs to be used. Why? Because there's going to be no people there. The land's going to be utterly devastated as well, and there's not going to be the people to have the need for any of this stuff. It's pitiful. It's pearly, isn't it? One cow, two goats, that's all anybody needs. It's going to be difficulty and hardship for the people. And then the last thing is that all their hard work's going to be undone. Um, verse 23. Israel had the immense blessing of coming into this promised land that was already taken care of, but they continued to work hard in the land. But here we're told that vineyards are going to be abundant, aren't they? In that day, every place there were a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels. There would only be briars and thorns. These vineyards are going to be abandoned and ruined. They're going to look more like the wilderness than anything else. Not the choicest grapes or the finest wines that were there before, but just mess. Fields that were carefully uh, cultivated will be grown over. They're going to be covered in you know, wind bushes or briars, plants that have no use and just get in the way. It's going to be useless. There's going to be fields full of not crops but of weeds. The land flowing of milk and honey will be unrecognizable. Why? Because God's people, Israel, were not looking to the Lord or trusting in His Word, and it leads to disaster. They will not stand firm in faith. And because they will not stand firm in faith, what does verse 9 tell us? That they will not stand at all. They will not stand at all. That's God's people, Israel. But what about God's people in the church? If we do not look to the Lord and do not trust His Word, it will lead to disaster. It will mean that grand churches full of opulence will be empty with weeds growing out of the walls and roofs. Do you see that? If we do not look to the Lord and do not trust His Word, the building of Union Road and La Comfort will shut. Simple. La Comfort will be empty and it will make a nice, lovely church conversion into a house. Here, you can maybe a set of flats, couldn't it? God will close churches that do not look to him. Churches that do not trust him or his word because as is the case in Israel, they were people not looking to the Lord. Therefore, they weren't really his people to begin with. Congregations that aren't looking to the Lord and trusting his word are showing that they're really not God's people at all either. Let us not take on the tactics of the world. King Ahaz is trusting in political allegiances He's trying to buy people off. He is trusting in his own preparations or his own mind or the mind of others rather than God. Let us not be people who trust in our financial giving or preparations, mission plans or mission statements, but just ever so simply trust in the Lord and his word. Let us not use worldly things, but the spiritual weapons that God uses. From Ephesians 6, his word and prayer. No, we're not facing the Assyrian army. We're not going to have an influx of soldiers coming towards us. But we are facing the evil one. How do we combat? Well, Jesus combats for us. Let's stand firm in our faith because God is with us. No matter what we face, public ridicule, shame, dishonor, God is with us, so stand firm. Let's not be like King Ahaz who just fires God's word off to the side and forgets about it. Let's trust in the Lord 
and in his word. Let me pray. Thank you.